Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I really think that despair and cynicism are the enemies of justice. There should be nobody sitting on the sidelines. People need to be engaged right now, and everything is at stake. That's Vanita Gupta. And what a week to have her back on the show, given everything that's going on with the Supreme Court. She's the head of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and was the acting head of the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division under President Obama, where I worked with her very closely. I speak with Vanita about the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, the fight for civil rights, and family separations at the southern border. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned with Preet is supported by Betterment. Following the twists and turns of politics can be tricky, especially these days. Maybe that's why you listen to me. Following the twists and turns of the market, that's why people use Betterment. Betterment is the largest online financial advisor. Its mission is to help you make the most of your money. With a mix of easy-to-use tools and personalized advice, Betterment helps people build wealth, plan for retirement, and hit their financial targets. And with Betterment, you pay one low transparent management fee, no matter who you are or how much money you invest. The world is moving fast these days, in unexpected ways. But that makes a strong financial plan more important than ever. Look, I know how fast life can change. One day you're a U.S. attorney, the next day you're a podcast host. So prepare for the unexpected. A solid financial plan and some sound advice can make a world of difference. Investing involves risk. Betterment can be your guide. And now stay tuned with Preet listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information... Visit Betterment.com slash Preet. That's Betterment.com slash Preet. Let's get to your questions. So the biggest news this week in America is who would President Trump nominate to be the next Supreme Court justice to take the position of Justice Anthony Kennedy? And we found out just yesterday, we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon, just yesterday, that his nominee is Brett Kavanaugh. We're going to have a robust discussion with Vanita in a couple of minutes about some of Brett Kavanaugh's views and what this means for the future of the country if he were to get confirmed and about how the process works. But I thought I'd start by just sort of laying out the landscape a little bit and what this moment looks like for some people who have been upset at the retirement of Anthony Kennedy and who are worried about what this means for a shift in the court. So a couple of things. One, you know, there are people who are, I think, naturally and understandably worried about what direction the court will take. Now, one thing to bear in mind is that when the founders decided to give Supreme Court justices life tenure, presumably there was a belief that over time, you know, elections do matter, and that when Democrats get elected, they get to appoint Supreme Court justices as vacancies become available. And the same is true for Republican presidents as well. Then over time, the will of the people sort of balances out what the court looks like. And it is true. Elections have consequences, and they should. Through vagaries of just life expectancy, retirements, and deaths, and the cycles of election, since 1968, there have been 18 Supreme Court appointments, 18 life tenure positions available and filled by the sitting president. 14 of those have been made by Republican presidents, 
Democrats only four. Carter, for example, Jimmy Carter only had, oh no, none. He had zero appointments to the Supreme Court. Whereas Nixon and Reagan both had four. Obama had two. Trump has already had two. We'll see what happens with this one, but he's already had two in less than two years in office. Now, it is true that over the last 50 years, Democrats have held the White House for a shorter period of time. I think 20 of the last 50 as opposed to 30 by Republicans, but that still comes out to about 40% of the last 50 years we've been governed by a Democrat in the White House. And yet the percentage of Supreme Court vacancies that have been filled by Republican presidents hovers near 80%. That is bound to happen, but it's something I think that is bothering people and worrying people. And you were going to start to see from time to time, I'm not sure I endorse these, but you'll see from time to time people making arguments about having fixed terms for Supreme Court justices. And that happens if you're on the side that doesn't like the fact that a president of the opposing party is going to be putting a Supreme Court justice into a vacant position. But it's just interesting to think about how these things work out, that it is not necessarily even over time, even though you think after decades and decades, it should be fairly even, or at least commensurate with the number of years that the particular party has held the White House. And that's not so. Another reason, as you know, that people are very upset about this particular vacancy is because of what happened to the vacancy uh, under the Obama administration at the end of his second term when Merrick Garland had been nominated. Not only was he never confirmed, not only did he never get a hearing, but Republican senators led by Mitch McConnell refused to even have courtesy meetings with him. The principle that was put forward, whether you want to call it a principle or not, was that there was an election coming up and there may or may not be a new president. And so the people should decide. That was Mitch McConnell's phrase. You know, to my mind, it's a power play. People on the other side have engaged in power plays as well. And you cite to whatever precedent or principle you can that helps you maintain the balance on the Supreme Court that you want. But people were very angry about it because there's still a lot of months left in Obama's term. And people feel that Merrick Garland should have received a hearing, should have received an up or down vote, and should have been seated. I'm one of those people. And so now here we are in an election year. It's not a presidential election year. And Mitch McConnell and his acolytes are saying, well, no, I only meant that when it's a presidential election year, you're not supposed to have a vote on a Supreme Court nominee because the people vote and there's no president to vote on this year. Well, I don't know why that makes a lot of sense either, because the Senate is divided at this moment, 51 to 49. And last time I checked the Constitution, that people say they read very carefully, the Senate has a role of advice and consent. They advise and consent. No Supreme Court justice gets seated without that other branch of government called the Congress, and in this case, in particular, the Senate, giving it a thumbs up. When you have a body that is that closely divided and could change, a lot of people think it won't, but it could, it doesn't strike me as any worse kind of a principled argument on the part of the Democrats to say, well, why don't we see what happens in the election, given also that we're closer in time to the election? And this is the swing seat that used to be held by Anthony Kennedy. And you're going to be seeing a lot of people saying one thing that's different from what they said a few years ago, which is the kind of thing that you see in Supreme Court confirmation battles for a long time. Now, one reason I feel like I can talk about this a little bit is people forget that before I was the United States Attorney, I worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee for four and a half years. And I was chief counsel to Chuck Schumer. And I worked on the confirmation hearings uh, for him and the committee on the Democratic side when John Roberts was nominated and went through his hearings and when Sam Alito was nominated and went through his hearings. And in fact, as I've been reminded by some people finding pictures of this, given the events of this week, I helped Senator Schumer prepare for and sat behind him at the hearings for Brett Kavanaugh in 2005 and six when he was selected to be put on the D.C. Court of Appeals. So I'm familiar a little bit with the process, some of the rhetoric that happens on both sides, and we'll be talking more about that with Vanita. One thing I want to say is what is at stake. One thing that people care about and should care about is what will happen with respect to Roe v. Wade, which lots of people, when they get appointed to a lower court, like the circuit court, and like Brett Kavanaugh said, that they respect precedent and they will be obedient to precedent set by the Supreme Court. That doesn't mean a whole lot once you're on the Supreme Court. Every lower court in the country is required to, by law, follow the precedence of a court that's higher than they are, like the Supreme Court. Precedents stand in the Supreme Court only so long as a majority of justices on it at any given time agree with that precedent. And it's not common, but it happens from time to time and has happened recently. 
just over the last term, Supreme Court justices overturn a precedent. So I think Roe is very much in play. And part of the reason people are also upset is because of the selection process here, that basically the President of the United States, as some people have been saying, outsourced the selection process to outside groups, including the Federal Society and the Heritage Foundation. They have been screened for being pure conservatives of a certain stripe. And so that the days of being able to say, well, we don't know what's going to happen with this particular justice, like happened with John Paul Stevens and like happened with David Souter, are over. And you'll see on TV from time to time over the next couple of months, a person by the name of Leonard Leo, who is at the Federalist Society, a top official at the Federalist Society, who helped to put together this list of 20 or 25 people from which Donald Trump selected his first and now his second nominee to the Supreme Court, who have been vetted very carefully, even though there might not be particular opinions on every single hot-button social issue that the Federalist Society cares about, they've been vetted and screened very carefully. The Federalist Society and a certain brand of conservative have made it a point, very clearly and very stridently, for a number of decades, that an important result that they want through the courts, because they haven't been able to do it through the Congress or through the states, uh, because the Supreme Court has not allowed them to, is to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's just a fact. They want Roe v. Wade overturned. And so now, when Donald Trump nominates someone like Brett Kavanaugh, I hear people like Leonard Leo getting on television and saying things like, well, Democrats saying that Roe is going to be overturned, that's a scare tactic. We don't know. There's no litmus test. We didn't ask the particular question. And the bizarre thing to me is, it's a little bit rich, that you have a person in the form of Leonard Leo and others who have made it a point to raise money on and pursue an agenda of overturning Roe v. Wade. I don't know how you go around the country saying everything we care about is the court. And one thing we want the court to do is overturn Roe v. Wade. And now that the president has adopted our view of who should be on the court, when someone says Roe v. Wade is in jeopardy, that's a scare tactic that doesn't compute. All right, let's get to your questions. Here's an email from Marianne from Ithaca. Given that Judge Kavanaugh seems very well qualified to serve on the Supreme Court, what is your opinion on whether one should oppose him based on disagreement with his past or future potential decisions, like on abortion? Like everyone else who writes in, love your show. Thanks very much. I appreciate it, Marianne. So this is the age-old question that we've had going back decades and decades. You know, it, there was a time when there were no confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominees. That began, I think, in the 1920s. As time has gone by and as a lot of issues, legal issues, social issues, have become more and more fraught and more and more politicized on both sides, by the way, people have taken more seriously the content of particular Supreme Court nominees' substantive views on issues that will affect people's rights, liberties, economic status, and whether you like it or not, and whatever rhetoric that senators spout and presidents spout or not, that's the world we're living in now. Some people dated back to the confirmation battle with respect to Robert Bork. People have had the same view when there have been Democratic nominees as well. And no matter what Mitch McConnell says, no matter what any Democratic senator you know said in the past, we are long past the time when people really believe, honestly believe, that nothing should be considered other than the credentials and uh, genteel temperament of the candidate. Now, the, the hard part is to figure out how to find out those views. And the way people get around answering the question, what are you going to do about a particular case, is to say very sort of legitimately that I don't want to answer a question on something that's going to come before the court. Now, it turns out that in recent times, Supreme Court nominees have become more and more and more averse to answering questions. I sat there for the Roberts hearing, and John Roberts didn't answer a lot of questions, but he still answered a lot more questions than Neil Gorsuch did just last year. People love to cite to something called the Ginsburg precedent. It's when Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1993 had her hearing. And on a lot of questions, she said, well, that issue might come before the court, so I'm not going to answer. What people forget is there were lots and lots of things that she did talk about and that might come before the court, including issues relating to reproductive rights. Look, my, my views have probably evolved on this over time. You know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, when I was a young assistant U.S. attorney and believed in this idea that judges can only call balls and strikes so long as they say that that's what they're going to do, that's what you care about. And then I got involved 
in the Senate, watched a lot of old hearings and read a lot of commentary and, in fact, several books on the confirmation process, and then got to see the confirmation hearings happen and then see what kind of decisions they render once they become judges and then seeing the effect that some of those decisions have on people. I just think it's a cop-out to think that the only thing that matters when so much is at stake with the Supreme Court and the balance on the Supreme Court, the only thing that matters is that you went to Yale or you went to Harvard and you got good grades and you're a decent person who says please and thank you. How they think about the Constitution, how they think about what their role is, whether they're activist or not. And it's just just not enough to say that someone is smart and nice. Here's another tweet question from Tyler. Preet Bharara, could Senate Dems not show up for the SCOTUS vote, resulting in a lack of quorum to even hold the vote? That's an interesting question. So there, you know, there are two votes that take place with respect to every Supreme Court nominee. So the first vote takes place in the Judiciary Committee itself, which right now has 21 members, 11 Republicans and 10 Democrats, because the Republicans have an extra seat because they're in the majority. But it's a very narrow majority, so they only have one more member. And then usually, if that nomination gets reported out favorably, in other words, a majority vote in favor of the nominee to advance to the floor, then you have an up or down vote on the floor and no quorum is necessary for the floor. But that's the way it works. So when you ask the question about the lack of quorum, presumably you're talking about trying to stymie the nomination, kill the nomination, strangle it in the committee. And I don't see how that can happen. For one thing, I guess you can try to game with the quorum. That's a rule that's particular to a committee. And you could easily get around that by, I think, changing the rule. I haven't checked this in a few years, but when I was on the Senate Judiciary Committee, for official action to take place, you needed at least one member of the opposing party to be present for there to be a quorum. I believe that's still the case, but I'm sure you will tweet at me if I'm wrong about that. And there are always going to be members of the of the Judiciary Committee, notably Senator Dianne Feinstein, who I like and respect and admire very much, whose view was from time to time when people would say, well, let's just deny a quorum, she thought that was a cop-out, that you were sent to the Senate as an elected representative to do the work of the people. And that if you had a view and you had a position, you articulated that, you fought for it, and you voted in a particular way. It was not a fulfillment of the obligation to the public and to her oath to just not show up. So I don't imagine a circumstance in which, you know, as a pragmatic matter, that Diane Feinstein is not going to show up and say what she thinks, which would provide a quorum. But even if she didn't, I'm not sure that that would fly. Now, there have been votes on people that have not been reported out favorably from the committee. And that does not prevent Mitch McConnell from having a vote on that person on the floor. That's happened off the top of my head. I can't remember which, but I believe it's happened with cabinet officials. Very, very unusual, very rare, probably not a great idea. and probably doesn't bode well for the support of that person if they get confirmed, but it happens. You know, nice thought, interesting thought, but I don't think it'll play out that way. Hi, Preet. Uh, this is Andy from Reading, Connecticut. Just a question about Michael Cohen. I'm hearing a lot of stuff about how his getting a new lawyer is a signal to prosecutors that he might be willing to cooperate. I don't understand that. Why, if he was willing to cooperate, wouldn't he just, or his lawyer, just contact the various prosecutor folks and say, we want to talk about a possible deal? Why does he have to send signals through the media? Thanks so much. Love your podcast. Bye. Andy, thanks for your question. It is not clear to me, and I think to most lawyers, why you have to do anything publicly, why you have to send any messages in the press. You know, lawyers are competent people. They have telephones, they have laptops with email availability, and they can communicate with the lawyers in my former office or with the special counsel's office very, very easily. And so this whole, you know, dance and game on the part of everyone, on the part of Giuliani and on the part of Michael Cohen through his new lawyer, Lanny Davis, is an odd spectacle to me. What I think is probably happening is the following. There's sort of, there, there are two tracks here. On the one hand, Michael Cohen has retained a very, very, very competent, thoughtful, smart lawyer, Guy Petrillo, I think I've mentioned before, who I worked for in private practice, and he briefly worked for me as the chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York. And then separate from that, it seems like Michael Cohen, either through a fit of pique or macho considerations or something else, wants to wage something of a public campaign, which is why he hired this other gentleman, 
Lanny Davis, who notably represented Bill Clinton in connection with impeachment. You know, it's, it's funny, I was thinking the other day that Donald Trump keeps tweeting about these phantom 13 angry Democrats who are working on the uh, Russia investigation. I don't think there are 13 angry Democrats. There's one angry Democrat that I see involved in any of these cases, and his name is Lanny Davis. He was a Hillary Clinton supporter, and I find it interesting that Michael Cohen would bring him on. You know, he's doing what I guess he's being paid to do. Lanny Davis, just in the last day or two, sent a tweet, you know, a pretty provocative tweet, responding to something Rudy Giuliani said on the Sunday show. said, did Rudy Giuliani really say on Sunday shows that Michael Cohen should cooperate with prosecutors and tell the truth? Seriously? Is that Trump and Giuliani definition of truth? And then he writes even more provocatively, Trump slash Giuliani next to the word truth equals oxymoron. Because of that attitude, I agree with the other folks who think that Michael Cohen has decided to turn the page. He's apparently changed his Twitter profile and he's talking a little bit more tough. Uh, maybe it's in the interest of trying to make clear to Trump that he should be pardoned. Maybe not. But I agree with you that these things are best done quietly and professionally. And there's not a lot of value in doing it publicly unless you're trying to send some particular message to he who follows social media and Fox News. My guest this week is Vanita Gupta. She served as the head of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division under President Obama. She's a veteran of the ACLU and the NAACP. Now she runs the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, one of the nation's oldest defenders of civil rights. She was on the show very early on, and I wanted to have her back now as a leader on the front lines of one of the country's most pressing fights today. I talked to her about the issue on everyone's mind this week, the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, the battle in the Senate and the implications for the long term, and we talk about the ongoing crisis of family separations at the border. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This time of year, no one wants to be in an office sorting through stacks of resumes, but the competition for good employees never stops. That's where ZipRecruiter can help. Their matching technology and easy-to-use website streamline the process, making sure the applications you see are from well-qualified candidates with the right experience. And when you visit ZipRecruiter.com Preet, you can do your hiring from anywhere. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. Now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Vanita, thanks for being on the show a second time. Really glad to be here. I believe you were our second guest. That's on right. Stay, on Stay Tuned with Breed. And now you're guest number 427 or something like that. Doesn't it feel like years ago that we did that? <laughs> it, you know, there's yet, so much that's happened. Yesterday feels like years ago. So, <laughs> there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, including what happened yesterday with the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Yep. I, I saw your statement, and I'm a little confused about your view. Here's the first sentence of your statement. Brett Kavanaugh is a direct threat to our civil and human rights and is unfit to serve on our nation's highest court. So if I'm reading between the lines there, what are you, what are you trying to say? Um, the fact that you're confused is uh, <laughs> highly satirical. It's, I know, yes, I know. Yes. Um, look, I think right now this vacancy is really demonstrating to the country that everything is at stake with this vacancy. Whoever fills this position is likely to tilt the court for a generation, if not more, to the right. And the real concern about Brett Kavanaugh and the whole process that's been used to, that has brought us to this point is that the president, in a completely abnormal and toxic way, outsourced the selection of a nominee to the ultra-conservative organizations of the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, 
and had it was very clear about having litmus tests, um, saying that he would only appoint judges who would overturn Roe versus Wade and take away women's freedom, and that he didn't want to have a judge like Justice Roberts who upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. He's been really clear that he wants to have the ACA undermined and take away health care for millions of Americans. He now is guaranteed to have a case go up to the Supreme Court. You know, there's no question that health care, access to health care for millions of Americans, that Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, that the majority of Americans, over 70 percent of Americans do not want to see Roe versus Wade overturned and don't want to have women's freedom to decide what we do with our bodies under uh, undermined. And Brett Kavanaugh's own record, I will say, has been quite distressing. Axios um, put out a chart that shows where Brett Kavanaugh falls vis-a-vis the political leanings of the other justices. And he is only slightly to the left of Clarence Thomas, but to the right of Neil Gorsuch. And he's got hundreds of thousands of pages of rulings that demonstrate his own tilt. He's got he's had a highly political career. I think it's really distressing that he has written law review articles saying that basically a president should not be subject to investigations or um, criminal indictments, regardless of whatever criminal wrongdoing is found, uh, really suggesting that a president can be above the law. And we've got a president right now who is under criminal investigation, very serious concerns. And and I don't think it's any wonder, knowing who the president is and how much he thinks of himself, that against maybe even some of the inklings of what Senator McConnell was saying about how difficult Brett Kavanaugh might be to confirm vis-a-vis the other potential nominees, that Trump chose the person who could potentially be the deciding vote on the jury that will decide whether he should, uh, and I use jury figuratively, but a, you know, a jury that will decide whether he can be subpoenaed, whether he can be compelled to testify, whether he can pardon himself or family members. So there's so, a so lot you, of yeah, so real you, concern. You, you said a lot there. Can we take a step back? Let me ask you a yes. personal question. You're the head of a civil rights organization. The one favor that I guess Donald Trump did for people who are in the business of caring about the court is he gave us a time certain at which he would name the successor. In, in years past, and including when I worked on the Judiciary Committee, someone would step down and you would have no idea when the nomination would be made. I remember when I was working in the Senate Judiciary Committee, Sandra Day O'Connor decided to retire and I was at the Department of Motor Vehicles when John Roberts was nominated and I was nowhere near my desk or near a computer, but at least we knew. And so my question to you is, for someone like you in your position who cares about these issues, what's the last 24 hours been like for you? What do you do? How do you mobilize people as a person in your position? You know, I would say that the mobilization and the work started as soon as the vacancy was announced. I think it did take a lot of us by surprise that Justice Kennedy was stepping down. And the good news about knowing that Trump had this list of 25 potential nominees from over a year ago that the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation handed to him was that we knew who, you know, the universe of people that he was going to be selecting from. And so there was information out there about each of the potential nominees. But look, it's been crazy and somewhat chaotic, as has been characteristic of the Trump administration. Uh, they, This is what they do. And almost every day, they are throwing new and unprecedented things at us, at the nation, at civil rights advocates. I would say that as soon as the vacancy was announced, the civil and human rights community was has been very unified about understanding what's at stake with this particular vacancy and, and, and really understanding also the unprecedented nature of the corrupt process that the president has been using. The reason why you didn't know, and none of us would ever know how long it would take before a nominee was announced, is usually the president was spending a lot of time uh, with the White House counsel and with other folks really kind of thinking through, combing through, doing the vetting, not having a prejudged list, a preordained list. And so none of that has happened. We're in a position right now where because healthcare is at stake, because a woman's right to choose and, to, and freedom is at stake, we are seeing people, especially women, I would say, and you know this, 
active and kind of enraged about what's happening to the state of the country. They're running for office in record numbers. They're really at the heart of the resistance. And this issue, these issues right now are resonating in a certain way. It's just, you know, several months before a really important election. And I, you know, I will say that I don't think progressives have understood or taken seriously enough what's at stake with the courts. They never, Uh, have have they ever? Has it ever been the case that progressives have taken it as seriously as conservatives? I don't think so. I mean, I think from the Warren court on, there's been a little bit of a taking the courts for granted. And meanwhile, because the right, I think since the Warren court on, had been so concerned about the culture wars and on particular issues, they were really building up infrastructure over the last 30 years to get organized um, and to be getting the funding together, to getting their activist base really energized around the fight for the courts. You know, when, when Roy Moore was running for Senate in Alabama, there were articles I remember reading about Alabama residents who said, no, I don't like Roy Moore, but boy, do I care about the Supreme Court. Yeah. And I just, I got to tell you, Preet, I don't hear that often enough uh, from no. progressives. And that's the, the mobilization. Things. It seems, you know, in all the characterizations that people do of, and, and you made some of these t- today about how Donald Trump has done things, but compared to how he rolled out, you know, the Muslim ban, the travel ban, compared to how he dismissed all the ambassadors, compared to a lot of other things he's done, he's been pretty tidy. And in some ways, you know, traditional, and depending on your perspective, you know, error-free in how he's nominated people to the Supreme Court. It's the one thing that has sort of kept all these other folks who would otherwise run away from him in line. Is that fair? Look, I think he's been extraordinarily successful at packing the courts. He has appointed more federal appellate court judges than any other president. He's also had the greatest number of vacancies in recent times. But I think we have to be very cautious about saying he's been tidy about it because several of his nominees have been quite extreme. There have been nominees recently, and I think the needle is moving so so much that we're kind of watching this happen on our watch. It's like the boiling of the frog. But we've had right. nominees literally telling the Senate Judiciary Committee that they cannot say whether Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided. Okay? Right. Like, that's like Marbury versus Madison. Like, there are some cases that we should not be questioning. I understand judges saying we don't want to opine on a particular topic that is going to come before us. I got to tell you, if legal apartheid, whether apartheid in this country is legal or not, is coming back to the court, uh, we've got way bigger problems. But the fact is, is that even Neil Gorsuch at his confirmation hearing said uh, that Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided. And then in recent weeks, we've had a number of nominees actually refuse to answer that question. So why why do you think it's a dumb question. Why do you think they're refusing to answer the question? It would seem to be not difficult. It's the correct answer that it was correctly decided. I don't know, you know, any rational person who thinks it wasn't. And it would also prevent people like you and other critics from raining hellfire on them. Why, why, what is going on in those brains? In other words, what, what's the worst case scenario that you're building out with respect to what is going on with those people? Well, look, I think that their rationale for not answering that question is because they feel like the next question, it leads them down a slippery slope to questions about whether Roe versus Wade was correctly decided, whether Connecticut versus Griswold was correctly decided. And they feel like, oh, well, we're not going to answer a question about a particular issue that may be coming up before us. That is an unreasonable excuse for not answering a question about whether Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided. There are some cases in this country that um, are so foundational to who we are and to our democratic system that to have those then placed into question, I think they're trying to be too coy for half, and it's unacceptable. But it's not uh, just and, being too coy. They're, being, they're also being sort of unduly provocative and almost poking a finger in the eye of, I think, rational people who care about the courts. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that that is absolutely the case. There's a worst case scenario, which is that actually some of these nominees don't believe that right, it was correctly right. decided. Um, right. There are some who who think that. But I, I just think what we have to be so careful because this is how norms and really slide. And um, if we aren't get protesting this and, and really kind of amplifying it, when we when the leadership conference posted a clip of Wendy Vitter 
uh, nominee Wendy Vitter refusing to answer that question and, and making it clear that she didn't want to answer that question. It went viral, 3 million views. And if anything, it's like that, we, we can't let that kind of thing get away in the darkness of night because that's when we really start to lose a hold on what should be and rightfully is abnormal and illegitimate and should not be a feature of our system. And we shouldn't be accepting nominees who engage in that kind of answering. And I think that that bar is moving. And that's what we are seeing. It's exactly part of a you know, a long-term plan. Leonard Leo from the Federalist Society is, uh, this has been his life's work and agenda. And he has quite successfully been able to carry out the rightening of our nation's federal courts. And I think progressives, it is to our really very serious harm that we don't pay attention to how important the courts have been in really being a backstop to other institutions that have violated or or abused the Constitution of people's civil rights and human rights. People died for these rights. Congress right. enacted landmark legislation. And now we are increasingly seeing federal courts back away and become overly politicized in the work. And they are a really important check. And we're in a time right now where Congress, frankly, isn't providing the kind of oversight to this president. And so the courts have been where it's been at. And right now, that is every issue we care about, Preet, every single one is playing itself out in the courts right now. So can we talk about the process a little bit more for a second? So the Federal Society and the Heritage Foundation made recommendations. And you and others have said that the decision-making has been outsourced. Is the Federalist Society bad? They are an organization that is got a very ultra-conservative view. The Heritage Foundation really wants to dismantle the regulatory state. They don't believe in the role of government in in healthcare. They don't, you know, so we just have to call out their extreme positions. Obviously, organizations have every right to exist, but I think that this process, and I think it needs to be pointed out, is not normal. It isn't normal for the president to rely solely on, you know, one or two organizations that have an ultra-conservative agenda. It just belies the whole politicization of this process to have it conducted in this manner. So let's go through what's at stake. You mentioned Roe and reproductive rights. What's the best evidence that Brett Kavanaugh would be the fifth vote to overturn Roe? Well, okay, so starting with the basic, which is that he was vetted and made it onto that list, okay? Like, so we we know that. We also know that he had not been on the list, and then Judge Kavanaugh tried to block an undocumented young woman in government custody from exercising her constitutionally protected right to an abortion, and it was over his dissent that the D.C. Circuit allowed the young woman to seek the care that she needed. And then, lo and behold, after issuing that decision, he made it onto the list. And so... I will again restate that the president has made no mistake about his own thinking and views about that he will not. On the issue issue of Roe, and and I'm asking this because I think people are sometimes confused about the positions of progressives on this. I don't think this this is a terrific argument, but people will say, well, if the president campaigned on this idea that he was going to appoint justices to do X or Y, namely automatically cause Roe to be non-operative and cause the ACA to be dismantled. Well, then anybody, by definition, that he would propose for the court would fall within his campaign promise and should be opposed. Is that fair to say? In other words, could there have been a circumstance in which this president, given his campaign promises and given the involvement of the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, could have nominated somebody that progressives would have thought was worth consideration. I think that Kavanaugh's name on Trump's shortlist of potential nominees approved by those two organizations, the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, we know, first of all, that he satisfied Trump's litmus test. And Trump, as you said, said that he wanted a person who would automatically overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, And there was a call to say that the president should try to reach outside of that list to give people more faith in the process and try to propose a consensus candidate. And so uh, nobody is saying that elections don't have consequences. They absolutely do. 
But the process that was used to select and bring Brett Kavanaugh's name forward is one that a lot of us find to have been toxic and unprecedented and not normal. And I think it's important for the American public to know that this has been an unprecedented process in that manner. What do you make of the fact that one of the first things that came out of Brett Kavanaugh's mouth at the ceremony at the White House was praise that he gave to Donald Trump saying, no president has ever consulted more widely I mean, and talked to more people. But what, do you, what do you make of the fact? I mean, that's, that's demonstrably false. Yes. Right? That's, that seems like a lie straight out of the box. I don't know why he felt the need to say that. I don't know. Maybe Donald Trump asked him to say that. But that was an, almost like an opening salvo that did not help him. That just seemed like a straight up lie. Do you think and he should so, be asked about that statement? That yeah, right. I do. I do think he should be. I think that the the, the hearings that are going to come forward, they need to be as rigorous and robust. Uh, and I think they're going to take a long time. I mean, I think there's a huge paper trail long outside of the published opinions that he made as a judge that go to his role in the Starr investigation, his role in Bush v. Gore. Um, he has been a Republican who has been a had a very partisan agenda long before he became a judge. And there's a lot of paper and potentially other stuff out there that I think needs and deserves to be examined. And right. this confirmation hearing is really, really important given what's at stake. And so I think it's got to be a very rigorous process to really unearth everything that needs to be unearthed. And I think there are a lot of people that are concerned about Judge Kavanaugh's own writings about, you know, the role of executive power and what the president, what a president can and can't get away with. Do you think he deserves a hearing? Well, I think that he deserves a hearing only if and when all of the documents that the senators are going to be asking for get produced. And I mean, the, the reason I'm asking, the reason I'm asking is, you know, Merrick Garland was not only denied a hearing, I, I believe he was denied courtesy meetings Republican senators refused to meet with him at all in what was an election year. And we have here, it's an election year, it's not a presidential election year, but the Senate is very close and they have a role in deciding who's the next Supreme Court justice. What do you make of that issue, the Merrick Garland issue? Is that, does that, does that make you angry? And even oh, if well, it does, yes. is it, but is it useful for people to use that as a reason to change the process for him? What do you think about that? You know, I, I will say, like, a lot of our groups, when we heard about the vacancy, really said, put out the gate, that there shouldn't be a hearing until after the people have spoken in November. And part of it is because Mitch McConnell, uh, Senator McConnell, set that as the the way that he treated Merrick Garland. And, of course, there's a lot of anger about that. I think right now the focus is on how this process takes place and whether there is going to be the kind of rigorous investigation into this nominee's background. I think there are other people who also believe that the president shouldn't get to nominate anyone on the court because he's under investigation. And until the Mueller investigation's over, he should just not be able to do this. Now, you know, I think for the leadership conference, there's a lot of concern about what happens to the rule of law if Judge Kavanaugh joins the Supreme Court. And there's a lot of concern right now about exactly what's at stake, voting rights, the principles of our democracy and the separation of powers, the um, access to health care, Roe versus Wade and everything else that we talked about. And so there is a lot uh, and a long paper trail that needs to be thoroughly investigated. And until that happens, I don't think that a hearing can take place. It would be a terrible mistake to even have a hearing anytime soon, given the length of his record. And so we'll see. And then it does get really close to an election. And, you know, there may be reasons at that point that it just doesn't make sense to have the hearing. So what's what's the goal here? Explain to folks. So you defeat, hypothetically, Brett Kavanaugh. You know, he gets defeated in the Senate because one Republican maybe changes his or her party line view. Then Brett Kavanaugh is defeated. That's happened before. There have been Supreme Court nominations that have gone down in smoke or up in smoke, uh, whichever directional preposition you want to use, is the hope that then, chastened by that defeat, and maybe with a different makeup in the Senate, that the president then nominates someone who's a little bit more moderate in the progressive view, because that's happened before as well. Yeah, I think that those, I mean, you said two, there are two scenarios that, that you just outlined. One is that the president then not, is 
push to nominate somebody off of this Federalist Society Heritage Foundation list who is much more of a consensus candidate. Another is that the composition of the Senate changes and forces that as a result of the midterms. And so, you know, again, nobody's saying the president doesn't have the right to nominate in a vacancy. But the question is, does Kavanaugh have the independence um, that uh, justice on the Supreme Court needs to have? Is there faith in the process the American people are going to have, given the process that has brought his nomination to the point we're at now? And I think that those issues are really serious issues that the country needs to contend with. And I also think that, look, we had a term this past term where people should understand just how much was at stake for on civil and human rights with the last term. Overturning 40 years of precedent in the Janus case to undermine collective bargaining rights and um, unions in this country, the, the Muslim ban, the punt on partisan gerrymandering, the siding with the state of Ohio against decades of precedent from the Justice Department around the interpretation of how voters can get purged off of voter rolls. I mean, these are these are issues that are really foundational to our democracy. And and so now with this opening, Justice Kennedy was often the deciding vote, standing up for human dignity on key issues. He wasn't always um, on the right side of history on these issues. Nobody is saying that. But there's no question that he was the deciding vote on some key LGBTQ rights, women's reproductive rights issues, some criminal justice issues and the like. And all of that is now at stake. And this is why we have to make sure that people really understand the real men and women who are going to be impacted by a judge who's passed a litmus test and who has been vetted by two organizations that have very extreme agendas and have been long in this fight to kind of recreate a different orientation in the courts that undermine its independence. And so that's the work that our groups are doing. It's going to be one outside of the beltway. I will say there's the thing that is going to get in our way is only our cynicism. Nobody thought that we would be able to preserve the Affordable Care Act a year ago. Numerous times was challenged um, in Congress, but it was really because people mobilized around the country and they fought hard to not lose their health care. They didn't want to have a situation where we would return back to where insurance companies would say, have you ever been sick? And if you had said yes, uh, that you wouldn't be able to have access to health insurance. And so this is about real people's lives. It's not about an inside the beltway fight. It really is truly about like the men and women and children that get impacted by decisions from the court. And how much is this fight now, not to become overly dramatic, but how much of this fight now, a bit about laying a marker in case in the next year or two, for whatever reason, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has to leave the court. I what, don't... What, what, what's yeah. that going to look like? Look, I think uh, we will confront that if and when we confront that. But I, I think this fight in and of itself, without even looking forward at any other vacancies, is... It's a fight of our lifetimes, given what's at stake and the important role of a swing vote that Justice Kennedy played on some really crucial aspects of American life. And so I don't even think that we need to look to the next vacancy to understand what is really, truly at stake with this one. So, so Jeff Tubin, my friend and colleague at CNN, predicted that, that Roe would be a dead letter within 18 months. Is that too much? Uh, do, do you agree with uh, you that know, prediction? I don't. I mean, I I don't think it's too much. There are about twenty states right now that are um, that are considering bills to to limit or deny women the freedom to choose what we do with our bodies. And so, there is going to be challenges per- working their way up to the United States Supreme Court to Roe versus Wade. There's there's no question. I mean, you know, do I think it would happen that quickly? I don't know, but I don't think this is why. This is not a hypothetical threat. These are real threats right now. And that's why people are taking this as seriously as they are. And if Roe becomes a dead letter, what does that mean for for women in America? If Roe becomes a dead letter, that really means that women don't have the freedom to decide what we do with our bodies. And beyond that, I think it just it relegates women to second-class citizen, allows men who are the majority members in the Senate to control our bodies and our lives. And I think it is, it would be in such stark contrast to the level of energy and activism that you're seeing with record numbers of women running for office and saying that we have 
a role to play in really constituting the leadership of this country. And so that, I mean, this is why so much is at stake right now. From your perspective, and maybe you don't want to answer this, but from your perspective, is it more important to win for the Democrats to win back the Senate than the House? Because that's where there can be some, you know, wiggle room on the Supreme Court? Or how do you think about that? I mean, I don't, I don't know that I can prognosticate on that. You, want, you, I, you want to know, pick, you don't want to pick either chamber. <laughs> I'm not going to pick. E- I'm not going to pick either chamber. I think it's really. And look, I need to be clear: the leadership conference doesn't work for the Democratic Party. What we work for are the values that we stand for. And right now, uh, unfortunately, and particularly with this administration and the lack of courage and backbone that the Republican Party has in standing up against the racism, the anti-immigrant kind of undergirding of almost everything that the president is doing that the administration is carrying out civil rights somehow is getting turned as like a partisan issue and it didn't used to be that way and it shouldn't be that way but that's where we are today and so it isn't about you know the house versus the senate obviously the senate has an incredibly important role in oversight and in confirming the judiciary and the like but I just I think one party rule uh, in America is terrible for the Constitution. It's terrible for the country. We are right now faced with an administration that has been polarizing, divisive, has taken unprecedented steps and actions and tweets and rhetoric. You know, again, we're coming up on the anniversary of, of Charlottesville, where we had we have a president who to this day has refused to denounce the white supremacists, some of whom were marching in his name back on August 12th of last year. I mean, we are really at risk of seeing some of our most basic core democratic norms be eroded, and it will be happening on our watch. And that is why we continue to speak loudly and to organize against what we is not legitimate, and we organize for the kind of country we want to be and the kind of country I think a lot of us believe we deserve to be. And and we're going to get through this time uh, and we're going to get through it, not because freedom and democracy are inevitable. We know they aren't. We know they're under strain all over the world right now. We're going to get through it because men and women of good conscience have stood up, have gone to the streets, have filed cases in court, our, the media is uh, refusing to back down and continuing to be vigilant. We've, we are going to power through this and we're going to win. But there's a lot of harm being done right now in real time. And we can just get to family separation as an example of that. Oh, I'm, I'm about to get to that. But right before we do, if you were a United States senator on the Judiciary Committee, what one question or two would you forcefully ask Brett Kavanaugh at his hearing? I think I would ask will he uphold Roe versus Wade? And I don't want that answer to be, I, it's existing law and I will uphold precedence because we know that Justice Gorsuch answered that question that right. way and has had no qualms about overturning decades of precedent. And so it needs to be a very probing question about- So you put, you would put it to him that starkly and demand an answer to it? Yeah, I, I would. It needs to be sussed out about what does personal liberty actually mean to you uh, in the context of Roe versus Wade? And I would want to know, like, do you want to take away health care for millions of Americans? I would want to know, do you believe that, you know, in the seat that you're sitting now, that that the president should be able to fire Robert Mueller? And then, of course, I would want to know a slew of different questions about voting rights in Shelby County and criminal justice reform. And nobody knows what his record is on LGBTQ rights. There's a lot to be probed and to be understood. So you brought up the issue of family separation, and a few weeks ago when we talked about you're coming on the show, that's one of the chief reasons I wanted to have you on, because I know you and your group have been doing work and, and care about it. Could you just very quickly catch people up on you know, exactly what the current status is of people who have been separated, moms and dads who have been separated from their children at the border, and, and what is happening with that? Yeah, I will say, you know, there have been a lot of low points in the last year and a half, but this particular issue has been gut-wrenching and really, really painful. You know, when the Trump administration decided to intentionally force families apart to separate young children from parents at the border, allegedly to deter them from entering the country, 
it was just a really painful thing. And then yes, when I, I will say that it was because of all of the outrage and the organizing, the leadership conference had organized faith missions down there. We were working with members of Congress to try to get them to do proper oversight on what was happening. We were talking to local lawyers on the ground uh, with Move On and the ACLU and the National Domestic Workers Alliance. We helped plan mass rallies uh, a couple of weekends ago. There were over 35,000 people in Washington, D.C. alone in 750 cities. There were rallies around the country. And part of that was just to keep attention to the fact that even after, so all of this energy persuaded, it, it, it mattered. And, and the president then issued an executive order saying that moving forward, he would not separate families, he would just detain them and would seek to detain them indefinitely against the Flores settlement, decades old settlement that sets out the standards for the detention of immigrant kids and says there's a limit, you have to release them to in the least restrictive setting after 20 days. Trump had his Justice Department and Jeff Sessions ask a federal court in California to remove that barrier and to allow the government to detain families in prison-like conditions uh, indefinitely. Because they didn't want to abandon, if they could help it, the zero-tolerance policy of arresting and charging with a misdemeanor every single person who seeks asylum, you know, not at a checkpoint. That's right. And so the zero tolerance, nothing about the executive order changed the zero tolerance policy and just moved it from family separation to family imprisonment. And what has been just awful is that even as every day there's new assaults and new attacks on various communities, there are still, as of over the weekend, there were 3,000 children that remained separated from their parents. And the government seems to not be able to unify them. There are still over 100 children under the age of five. Now, you and I both have kids. Like, I know what my two sons were like under the age of five. And I... I just cannot. My, my son's fathom. now at thirteen and fifteen. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, they, no. yeah, right, exactly. Look, it, it, I think it's one of the most painful things that that anybody has seen, and as a testament to the kinds of things that that you and the leadership conference participated in. When people are looking for something hopeful, and there's not that much of this these days, and when they say, "Well, you know, nobody's voice matters, nobody cares, the other folks have all the power," as far as I can tell, based on the activism and the activity and the protesting and the loud voices, not, you know, political voices, but regular people's voices, shocked and, you know, amazed and disgusted by the separations, there was a partial, you know, withdrawal of a policy that this president said he was never going to change. And I don't I don't think that's ever happened on any other issue. Am I right? Yeah, look, I, well, I think you could say that it happened on health care to save preserve the ACA. And I there have been moments where this has happened. But I agree with you that it was because of the outpouring of people in communities all over the country about how egregious this policy is. And that I think that that's why they made that change. But what I think is so terrible is that we find ourselves weeks after this executive order was issued, still with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children that remain separated from their parents. And that the government has admitted in litigation, the ACLU sued in May against this policy, and now that litigation is playing itself out. And a judge ordered the government to unify the families by July 26th. And the government has now admitted that they just can't meet that deadline and has started doing DNA testing of some of these young kids who can't even give their own consent. Can you explain, because this this is so infuriating. I said on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I've said elsewhere, and anybody who's done, as you have, any kind of courtroom work and either represented a defendant or prosecuted someone, when you separate someone who comes into the system from their personal property, you get a receipt, you're supposed to keep track of it, you're supposed to give the property back to the person later. And have you been able to figure out how it can be that the government seemed not to have had any plan at all of tracking children who were separated from their parents, like, you know, separate apart from the legal issue? I mean, I really think they had no plan. I don't think they believed that they were going to be unifying these families. And so what in our system, and I know this because I represented children in 
in detention, in family detention back in 2006 in Texas in these horrible conditions run by a private prison company. But the kids, um, when they're unaccompanied minors, go into the jurisdiction of Health and Human Services. The Office of Refugee Resettlement has jurisdiction over the health and well-being of these children. And the adults remain in DHS custody. And so trying to rationalize the irrational here, apparently the U.S. government doesn't have databases or didn't actually document and connect those systems and is now doing invasive DNA tests of kids to figure out who the parents are. I mean, it's, it is, it's just unbelievable. And I look at like the 12 boys in the Thai soccer team and the amount of work that was done to rescue them. And, you know, God bless that, them. That was just an incredible story. But here we are in a situation where all of these people are in the custody of the United States government and the government is unable to unify two, three, four-year-olds, one-year-olds, infants that were snatched from their mothers to their parents. I, it's, I, not, it's, I, al- it's almost not even believable. And at the, same, believable. at the same time that they didn't have the foresight to figure this out and are still trying to fight it to some extent and are failing in what a judge has ordered, at least so far, this administration is setting up denaturalization task forces. I know. What do you have to say about that? Now, look, let's be very clear that this is not about curbing illegal immigration. I mean, Jeff Sessions, Steve Miller, Stephen Bannon, they have had a plan that they cooked up years before they came into the Trump administration to limit legal immigration. And it is a plan that is based on a notion and a fear of the changing demographics of this country. This has all been a part of this plan. And so we shouldn't be surprised. And we're seeing it play itself out in a lot of ways. So, you know, things like the census citizenship question. Well, it turns out that Steve Bannon had been working on that agenda to try to get the Commerce Department to add a question about citizenship status to the U.S. Census. Uh, Got Jeff Sessions to say it was going to be in the name of voting rights enforcement. Jeff Sessions, who's called the Voting Rights Act, intrusive. And, you know, this is all, I mean, you can see that the litigation to stop police departments from being able to have the trust of everyone in their in their jurisdiction, including immigrants, to call them and, and, pe- and trying to penalize local jurisdictions for being so-called sanctuary cities and the like. I mean, this is all deeply, deeply rooted in a view of America that is narrow, that is white, that is based on fear and division. And I think the family separation issue, I will tell you, it has been hard. There's a lot of rhetoric and anti-immigrant rhetoric that can be very compelling to people that are hurting or feel like they're outside of the mainstream economy, white working class folks. But this issue of kids being separated from their families, I got to say, this is, um, I just think that this episode is a dark stain in in our history, and we are not through it yet. And we need to keep attention and focus on it until every child is reunited with their parents, and that we are not just kind of trying to indefinitely imprison young children in bad conditions. The good news is yesterday night, the federal judge, you know, would have no part of it and said, we, you're not going to do by judicial fiat what Congress has refused to do to provide answers to these issues, and I'm not going to allow for indefinite detention of children. So that's the district court. Again, why do courts matter? This is why courts matter. Well put. Do you think um, at this point that, or soon that judges should start holding people in contempt? You know, I think that in this situation, um, yeah, I think that there's there's no question that if the federal government is unable to comply with the court order, that is, they are, they are in contempt of a court order. And, you know, it's what does it mean for the federal government to be in contempt? Ultimately, the court, you know, may decide to go that route. But people need to understand that we have a lot more power than we than we sometimes claim to be. And sometimes it's our own cynicism that gets in our own way. I really think that despair and cynicism are the enemies of justice. 
They give us excuses for inaction. They give us, they are often kind of a privilege that is not afforded to everyone. And that at this time, there is there should be nobody sitting on the sidelines. There are a million ways that people can engage. Not everyone has to be holding a sign in the street. Some people are going to just feel comfortable donating to an organization that's doing this work, or they're going to be calling up their senators about the Supreme Court fight. There's so many ways, but people need to be engaged right now, and everything is at stake. And we cannot afford to have a complacent society where we say, oh, well, we just don't have the power to make this change. You know, the Trump administration has all the power. No, we have to be building power in our communities. There's no question that we need to also be voting come November, but we need to be invested and engaged even in between elections because this is how this stuff happens. If we aren't engaged in this way, this will be the boiling of the frog. This is where we will suddenly see norms and practices just eroded before our very eyes because nobody stood up. You know, that's what's so gratifying to me, even in this time, as hard as it is for those of us who care about this country, who love this country, whose parents came to this country because of the promise of democracy and civil and human rights. People in this country now, there are millions more people who see themselves as activists and who are taking actions in small ways and big, who never saw themselves that way a year or two ago. And We've got to sustain that, and that energy can make change, and we've seen it make change, and I think this is an incredibly important moment in our history for that reason. I totally agree. I know that you have so many things going on with the nomination yesterday and what's going on on the border and a whole bunch of other issues on voting rights that we didn't even have time to get to. So thank you for your service and for your work and making time to come here and say some things that I think the listeners of the podcast really appreciate. Well, thank you, Preet. And I think your podcast is really amazing, but also really important because it's only by continuing these kinds of conversations and giving space to have some more in-depth ones that we can actually focus on what's really important amidst all of the noise and chaos right now. So thank you very much. Thank you. Get back to work. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Vanita Gupta. If you like the show, Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Benet Basti. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.